I take it that it's beyond dispute that the senses interact. And there are many and many kinds of interactions between the senses. Thus far, much contemporary philosophical work on perception that's not restricted to one sense has had a taxonomical focus. So much contemporary work on non-sense-specific perception has been about distinguishing varieties of non-sense-specific perception and identifying examples of those varieties. And I'll be using some of that prior taxonomical work here. What I primarily want to think about is the way in which such interaction constrains our thinking about the senses, and in particular, our thinking about the distinction between them. So you sometimes hear uh, or see expressed the thought that a great deal of this sort of interaction would in some way threaten that distinction, maybe by making it impossible to make, or at least by making it otiose. Relatedly, it's often said that interaction between the senses makes it illegitimate to think about perception one sense at a time. So for one, if perception rarely or even never occurs in that way, then if one sticks to just talking about the modality specific, one will have very little to talk about. And furthermore, there's a serious explanatory penalty that one must pay if all or most perception is nonsense specific and yet one explains it only sense by sense. You might think your ex explanations then will always or usually be at best partial. So I want to try and fill out to some extent and evaluate these suggestions. So considering the impact of non-sense specific perception on thought about the senses is complicated by the involvement of other related issues. So there's no agreed on view of just what it is to have a sense. And even amongst those who share a view of what having a sense is, there's disagreements about what the essential difference between them amounts to, if there is any such essential difference. And you might think we ought to settle the answer to these questions before we can even determine which uh, cases of perception count as cross-modal. However, rather than offer any particular answer to these questions, I want to try and consider how nonsense specific perception constrains thinking about the senses, given some different answers to these questions. And I think this is worth doing, because whilst it's plausible that you need to have in mind some view of what a sense is to talk about nonsense specific perception, equally some views of the senses and the distinction between them are, as we'll see, made problematic by the occurrence of nonsense specific perception. So you can't take these issues neatly in order. Furthermore, I'll assume, for the sake of argument, that the best response to at least some disagreement about what it is to have a sense is a sort of pluralism. So I'll suppose that there's more than one thing one might have in mind by talking about the senses, and more than one acceptable way of distinguishing between them. And maybe this is true. So given this supposition, exploring how the occurrence of nonsense-specific perception constrains thought about the senses requires one to consider how it constrains such thought, given a variety of different answers to the question, what is the sense? So one amongst many limitations of what follows then is that there are inevitably answers to these two questions at the bottom here that I'm not going to consider. So this is roughly what I'm going to do. So I'll look at two views of what it is to have a sense. On the first view, to have a sense is to have a kind of system. And on the second view, it's to have a kind of capacity. I'll say more about what that means as we go along. 
and I'll look at two different sorts of nonsense-specific perception. So the first, multi-sensory integration, uh, sits most naturally with a view of uh, senses of systems. And the second, cross-modal perceptual experience, sits most naturally with the view of senses of capacities. So, I'll look at the impact of multi-sensory integration on thought about the senses as systems, and then think about what, if any, impact multi-sensory uh, multi integration has on thought about the senses as capacities. But I'll spend probably most of the time thinking about this thing at the bottom. So how cross-modal perceptual experience impacts upon thought about the senses as capacities. So first of all then, are different views of what it is to have a sense. So on the first way of thinking, to have a sense is to have a kind of perceptual or sensory system or mechanism, a bit of equipment that produces or at least is crucially involved in the production of perceptual experiences. So this way of thinking about what it is to have a sense sits well with talk of senses as bringing about or producing perceptual experiences and with thinking about perception generally as something that's produced by the senses. So to distinguish between senses on this first view is to distinguish between sensory systems or mechanisms. On our second way of thinking, thinking of senses as capacities, what it is to have a sense is to have the capacity or potential to perceive in a certain way, which involves having a certain kind or mode or category of perceptual experience. And this view sits well with talk of senses as modalities. They are, says this second view, capacities or potentials to have modes or modalities of experience. So to distinguish between the senses on the second view is to distinguish between the capacities or potentials, I'll suggest, in terms of what their capacities or potentials for, namely the having of a certain kind or mode of perceptual experience. So sense, let us suppose, is polysemous. These two ways of thinking represent two coexisting and consistent uses of the term sense. So I'll begin in the next section by saying something about how the occurrence of perception not restricted to a single modality constrains thought about our senses understood systems. So, to understand the senses as sensory systems is to think of them as composed of receptors that receive information of some kind, parts of the nervous system that take that information to the brain, and also perhaps the areas of the brain to which that information is taken for further processing. Thus understood, it's sometimes said that senses have commonly been thought of as being isolated from one another, in that they produce perceptual experience without being affected by one another. So one natural way to fill out the idea that senses as systems are isolated from one another is that they're Fodorian modules. Modules in Fodor's sense are isolated in that they're domain-specific. They're concerned with a restricted subject matter. And furthermore, they're inaccessible and encapsulated. As Jesse Prince puts it, they don't let much information out and they don't let much information in. So what particularly threatens the idea that the senses as systems are isolated in these ways is the occurrence of what's often called multisensory integration. 
So multisensory integration occurs when information from more than one sensory system is brought together in the production of a quite new product. This is often in the service of greater accuracy of representation. So for example, the nervous system may, as Stein and his colleagues put it, come to combine visual and auditory information to obtain a more precise estimate of the speed and direction of an object's motion. So the resultant perception cannot then be readily deconstructed to reveal the components for which audition and vision are each responsible. So the occurrence of such processing is sometimes made apparent through the occurrence of certain illusions. In such illusions, multisensory interaction that probably occurs in general in the service of greater accuracy of representation leads to information from one sensory system bringing about an illusory perceptual experience of a kind not wholly associated with that sensory system. And perhaps the most well-known example is the ventriloquism effect. As I'm sure is familiar in ventriloquism, visual information received at the same time as some auditory information causes one to perceive a sound, say, of a bang, as coming not from where it really came from, but from a location nearer to where that which one saw seemed to be. So maybe the location of uh, some seen mouth movements or a flash. The occurrence of multimodal integration suggests that sensory systems are not inaccessible and encapsulated with respect to the other sensory systems. Sensors as systems then are not isolated in the way that Fedorian modules are. So, what does the occurrence of multisensory integration mean for thinking about the senses as sensory systems? How might we fill out here the suggestion that there is some such impact? Well, for one, if one thinks that senses as systems just are Fedorian modules, then one must think that there are no senses. But what you're more likely to think, and what usually people conclude, is just that senses are some other, perhaps functionally specifiable, part of the human mind. And what of the claim that we ought not to think of perception one sense at a time? Well, the occurrence of multisensory integration shows that, at least sometimes, how things seem to us is the result of information from more than one sense processed in such a way that the independent contribution of each is not available. If there is a very great deal of multisensory integration thus understood, then there will be very few cases of perception that will be understandable one sense at a time where senses are understood as sensory systems. And thus, restricting oneself to, sen not to sense specific perception might give one little, if anything, to talk about. Much here depends on the prevalence of multisensory integration. But the problem with thinking of perception one sense at a time might run deeper than this. So when we think of perception in terms of senses understood as systems, we're thinking about it in terms of how it's produced, how it's brought about. One cannot even explain the occurrence of perception that's the result of multisensory integration in terms of the independent contributions of each of two or more senses. Attempting to explain perception one sense at a time then will yield, for these cases, attempted explanations that are not merely partial, but mistaken. And perhaps this raises, and makes quite appealing, the following possibility. 
So let's explain perception not in terms of multiple senses, someone might say, but instead in terms of some more encompassing perceptual system that takes as input information from various sorts of receptors. So the significance of this suggestion will depend in part on just how much multisensory integration there is. If there's a very great deal, then the various senses as systems will have so little in the way of explanatory purpose, then one might wonder whether distinguishing between them at all, even whilst acknowledging their lack of isolation, is otios. So perhaps that's one way of filling out the worries people have about uh, the impacts of nonsense-specific perception on senses thought of as systems. So to understand the senses as capacities in the way I have in mind is quite different to understanding them as sensory systems. So recently John McDowell, and also in a forthcoming and avowedly Aristotelian paper, that's the only mention of Aristotle I'm guessing in this talk, <laughs> Mark Calderon, have emphasised the significance of the theories of perception, of the fact that sight, for instance, is a perceptual capacity. So seeing, which involves the occurrence of a conscious perceptual episode or experience, is the exercise of this capacity. So one counts as having the capacity sight only if one has the potential to undergo such episodes, which is to say, only if it's possible for one to see. Now, of course, it's being possible for one to see will depend in part on, as Calderon puts it, the functional organisation of the perceiver's perceptual system. So you'll have to have the right perceptual equipment in order to have the capacity sight. So having a sense as a capacity is not unrelated to having senses understood as systems. Nevertheless, we can see that thinking about senses as capacities is quite different to thinking about them as sensory systems when we focus on how capacities are individuated. So having the capacity to see doesn't uh, require one to actually have perceptual experiences. So one can, at least in principle, have that capacity and uh, be blindfolded from birth and thus never see. Nevertheless, it's still true that what makes the capacity one has sight is what it's a capacity for. So in general, capacities are individuated by what they are the potential for doing or having. And of course, sight is the capacity for seeing, for having visual perceptual experiences. So thus, in order to distinguish between perceptual capacities, we need to individuate kinds or modes of conscious perceptual episode or perceptual experience first. And that's not true when we're thinking of senses and systems. So to distinguish the capacity sight from the capacity hearing, smelling and so on, we need to distinguish between the seeings, the hearings, smellings and so forth. So how might nonsense specific perception impact upon thought about the senses considered as capacities? Well, it's a difficult question. So it will depend in part upon how we distinguish between these kinds or modes of perceptual experience. But it will also depend on the kind of nonsense specific perception that we have in mind. So I'll try to stick to uh, terminology that Fiona McPherson has suggested in her 2011 paper on cross-modal perceptual experience. And I'll use multi-sensory integration 
just to refer to perception not restricted to one sense, as discussed previously, where we're thinking of senses as systems, and I'll call cross-modal perceptual experience, perception that's not restricted to one sense, where a sense is a capacity. We've seen that to have a sense understood as a capacity is to have the potential to perceive in a certain way, which amounts to having a certain kind of perceptual experience. Since capacities are individuated by their exercise, in order to distinguish between the senses, we'll need to distinguish between these kinds, categories, or modes of perceptual experience. How might we do so? Well, helpfully, we can take Grice's famous four criteria for distinguishing between the senses as a guide. So we might distinguish between the modes of experience in terms of uh, differing features that we become aware of by means of them. So we can put this just in terms of what they represent. Or we might appeal to their special introspectable or phenomenal character, what it's like to have those experiences. Alternatively, thirdly, we might appeal to the stimuli involved in bringing about the relevant experiences. And finally, perhaps we might appeal to the sensory systems involved in bringing about the experiences. Or, as Bryce notes, we might use some combination of these. So a unimodal perceptual experience is an experience that belongs to just one modality. And the, as Macpherson puts it, purest case of a unimodal experience would be one that's unimodal according to all four criteria and the modality according to each is the same. One possible view then of how to distinguish between the senses and between the modes of perceptual experience is that we should distinguish between them using all four criteria simultaneously. So on such a view, the senses are capacities to have kinds of unimodal, pure experience. So thinking of the senses as systems and as capacities involves two different senses of sense. However, the fact that senses as systems are not isolated in that multisensory integration occurs impacts upon thought about the senses as capacities for unimodal pure perceptual experience. So perceptual experience that's the result of multisensory integration is not unimodal pure experience. So it doesn't belong to one particular modality by Grice's fourth criterion. So at least some perceptual experience will not be the exercise of a capacity for having a kind of unimodal pure perceptual experience. So, of course, a capacity can give rise to defective instances of that which it's a capacity for. It's that feature of the notion of a capacity that has made McDowell and recently Mark Calderon care about this notion of a capacity. But perceptual experience that's the result of multisensory integration ought not intuitively to be thought thereby as the defective exercise of a capacity. In fact, as we've seen, multisensory integration most often occurs in the service of accurate representation. So multisensory integration doesn't entail defectiveness. Furthermore, if there's a great deal of multisensory integration, then a great deal of perceptual experience will not be the exercise of a sense, understood as a capacity for having a particular kind of perceptual experience, distinguished by all four of Grice's criteria. So if we think of senses in this way, as capacities for having modalities of unimodal pure perceptual experience, then we'll be put in the peculiar position of having to accept that some perceptual experience 
and perhaps a great deal of it, isn't the exercise of our senses. We might, I suppose, accept this, but it seems like a peculiar thing to accept. What would be the point of an idea of perceptual capacities, or potentials to perceive, of which some, and probably many of our perceivings, are not the exercise? So much, then, for this possible view of how to distinguish between the senses understood as perceptual capacities. On Macpherson's helpful taxonomy, application of each of Grice's criteria individually yields four further ways of categorising perceptual experiences as unimodal. And these, in turn, will yield four more possible views of how to distinguish between the senses as capacities. One of these views is that we should distinguish between the kinds, categories or modes of experience in terms just of the sensory system that was involved in bringing them about. So this is to bring the notion of a sense as a capacity and the notion of a sense as a system much closer together. The senses on this view are capacities to have unimodal sensory system perceptual experience. Sight, the capacity for seeing, will be a capacity distinguished from other perceptual capacities in terms just of the sensory system involved in bringing seeings about. And this view will fall foul of the same difficulties as the view just considered for just the same reasons. So the occurrence of multi-sensory integration uh, has the same effect on this view as it did on the previous view. So thinking then that the senses are capacities to perceive in ways that differ partly or wholly in terms of the sensory system that brings them about has some awkward consequences. So rather than consider further whether we might want to accept these consequences, let's move on. There are other ways to think of the senses as capacities as distinguished from one another, and perhaps these will prove less problematic. So once we're thinking of senses as capacities to perceive, which involve undergoing some kind of conscious episode, the first and second of Grice's criteria begin to look quite appealing. So it's not implausible that senses are capacities to have kinds of, uh, to use McPherson's taxonomy again, unimodal representational and or unimodal phenomenal perceptual experiences. Which is to say, it's not implausible that what distinguishes, for instance, the capacity sight from the capacity hearing is the representational content, or what it's of, and or phenomenal character, or what it's like, of the experiences of seeing and hearing. There is at least some precedent for distinguishing between the categories of experience that these are capacities for in one or both of these ways. So obviously, these are views that people have accepted. So Aristotle apparently thought that the senses are distinguished in terms of what they represent, as we're putting it here. And Grice thought that we have to appeal, um, even if we appeal to something else, we can't eliminate appeal to phenomenal character in distinguishing between the senses. But also, when philosophers are interested in categorising experiences in other ways, whether by sense or not, they often appeal to what those experiences are of or how they seem. And likewise, in counting experiences, the standard way of um, determining uh, what experiences you're having at a time, this is something we'll talk about more towards the end of the presentation, appeals to what those experiences are of and or what they're like. So let's consider then the possible, precedented and not implausible way of thinking according to which the senses are capacities to have modes 
of unimodal phenomenal and or unimodal representation of sexual experiences. Our question now is whether we have experiences that are cross-modal with respect to their representational content and phenomenal character. And if we do, what impact this has on thought about the senses understood in this way? I'm not going to be concerned here with whether there are experiences that belong to one modality according to one of these criteria and another modality according to the other. So I'm going, therefore, to be interested in whether we have and the potential impact of what McPherson calls cross-modal within RP experiences. I'm sorry about all the terminology, but it makes it neater. Experiences that have the phenomenal character and representational content of more than one sense. So Casey O'Callaghan argues in a paper of that name that not all perceptual experience is modality-specific. And in particular, O'Callaghan argues that there are perceptual experiences that have phenomenal character that's not modality-specific. Now, he suggests that the thesis that all phenomenal character is modality-specific is not shown to be false merely by the fact that we experience common sensibles, even though he accepts that phenomenal character accrues in part in virtue of what one's experiences of or its representational content. It's quite plausible, he thinks, that any two token perceptual experiences of squareness per se may differ in phenomenal character when they belong to different modalities. So perhaps differing modality-specific modes of presentation, something like Jerome mentioned yesterday, generate a phenomenal difference. So merely appealing to common sensibles, like Alan thinks, is not going to give us experiences that are cross-modal in any interesting sense. Rather, what he thinks shows the modality specificity thesis, so the claim that all experiences are modality specific to be false, are cases in which perceptible feature instances, as he puts it, are accessible only multimodally. So relevant features are intermodal identity, so something seeming to be the same object across two senses, or intermodal causality, or intermodal synchrony. These perceptible features are, of course, by definition, features that cannot be experienced with just one modality. So take intermodal causality, something usually experienced in one modality, a flash, say, seeming to cause something experienced in another modality, perhaps bang. So clearly, this overall, flash seeming to cause a bang, is not something that can be experienced either just visually or just auditorily. Assuming, as we are doing, that what determines the modality to which an experience belongs is it's having the right kind of phenomenal character and representational content, the experience of a flash causing a bang belongs to more than one modality, which is to say, it isn't unimodal. To use McPherson's taxonomy once more, it's experiences like this, O'Callaghan thinks, that are cross-modal within RP. How then might the occurrence of this sort of cross-modal experience impact upon thought about the senses as capacity? I said at the outset that people often express the thought that the occurrence of non-sense-specific perception is somehow going to impact upon the way we distinguish between the senses, maybe even make it difficult to do so. So O'Callaghan suggests that the occurrence of this sort of perceptual experience, this sort of cross-modal perceptual experience, 
contradicts what he calls the composite snapshot conception. So on that conception, the stream of perceptual consciousness at a time, as we might put it, is made up of a conjunction of distinct unimodal experiences. So the cross-modal perceptual experiences we've been talking about are obviously not unimodal. So minimally, the occurrence of these experiences shows that the composite snapshot conception is false, just in that some of the components of the stream are not unimodal. So they're not unimodal more specifically, and that they're not themselves understandable as a conjunction of unimodal perceptual experiences. So seeing a flash and hearing a bang is not thereby seeing a flash causing a bang. The experience of a flash causing a bang is inherently audiovisual. When you have an experience of a flash causing a bang, then you don't have the visual experience and the auditory experience. You have just this cross-modal audio-visual experience. Now, the kind of cross-modal experiences with which we're concerned, recall, and which we've agreed with O'Callaghan that we have, are ones in which it seems to us that some relation holds between things character characteristically perceived with more than one modality such as a flash seeming to cause a bang. Only a little reflection is needed for it to seem plausible that at least most of the time we're aware of things in this way. We're aware of things as standing in some relation to something perceived in another modality. Rarely, if ever, do things perceived in one modality not seem to be, for instance, spatially related to things perceived in another modality. And consider perhaps more tellingly temporal relatedness. Do we ever perceive something in some modality that doesn't seem to have occurred or obtained before or after or at the same time as something perceived in another modality? Plausibly, no. But then, if whenever I perceive an object, I perceive it as standing in some relation to something I perceive in another modality, then all my experience of objects is cross-modal. And, as we've seen, this sort of cross-modal experience is not understandable as a conjunction of unimodal experiences. So, not only does the stream contain some elements that are not unimodal, but, plausibly, it contains only such elements. If, then, one thinks of senses as capacities to have just experiences that are unimodal, then it seems that we never exercise those capacities. In which case, why think of perception in terms of distinct senses at all? And note, in addition, that if we think of senses as capacities to have unimodal perceptual experiences, and thus only of unimodal experiences as the exercise of those capacities, it becomes difficult to think of those experiences that are not unimodal as being even cross-modal. So if experiences belong to a modality only in virtue of being unimodal. In what sense could an experience be, for instance, both auditory and visual, and in that sense cross-modal? How, that is, could it be the exercise of both the visual and the auditory capacities? So much for thought of the senses as capacities for having unimodal RP, representation and phenomenal experiences. The occurrence and prevalence of cross-modal perception does not, however, rule out thought about senses as capacities per se, 
nor, I suggest, as capacities for having modes of perceptual experience that are individuated by their representational content and phenomenal character. We've been assuming so far that the modes of perceptual experience that have individuated senses understood as capacities are modes of perceptual experience that don't overlap. But there's nothing in the notion of a sense as a capacity that forces this assumption about the relationship between the modes of perceptual experience on it. Instead, we can think of senses as capacities for having kinds or modes of experience such that their members will belong to more than one category or mode. So far, so good. We look to have ruled out a way of thinking of modes of experience, of modes of unimodal experience, but in so doing, we've ruled thought of senses as capacity back in. Hurrah. Note, however, a remaining and serious difficulty. So this difficulty is hard to express, but I think it might capture what worries people about nonsense specific perception. So we've said above that we hardly ever, if ever at all, experience something in a modality that doesn't seem to stand in some relation to something perceived in another modality. So this means that the vast majority, if not all of our perceptual experiences, will belong to more than one category or kind of experience, and thus count as the exercise of more than one perceptual capacity. So to see the awkwardness that results from this, consider why do we operate with a notion of multiple senses at all? A difficult question to which there's much more to be said than I'll be able to see here, say here. In the first instance though, it seems right to say that we operate with such a notion because we think exercising each capacity amounts to something rather different. It's a different occurrence. It is what it is and it's not another thing thing. Seeing and hearing and smelling, for instance, are different achievements that involve different conscious perceptual episodes. But if, by and large, and perhaps always, the exercise of one capacity just is also the exercise of another, then the exercise of each capacity does not amount to something rather different. It is what it is, and it's also another thing. Just as the occurrence of a great deal of multi-sensory integration seems to undermine the point of distinguishing senses as systems, so a great deal of cross-modal perception seems to undermine the point of distinguishing senses as capacities. Perhaps we ought to think, then, of perception as the exercise of a general amodal perceptual capacity. Or perhaps we should think of ourselves as having perceptual capacities that cut across the senses we currently think of. So perhaps we have capacities that are, in a sense, cross-modal. An audio-visual capacity, for instance. Granted, it might be misleading to call it that. And we can make much the same point here by saying that massive cross-modality makes it illegitimate to think of perception one sense at a time. One can think of wholly overlapping modes of perceptual experience, each of which counts as the exercise of one modality but it's far from clear why one would bother to do so. I don't want to deny that the occurrence of cross-modal perception constrains how we can think about the senses in some way or ways. But I do want to suggest, and perhaps this is just obvious, in which case I apologise, that the conclusions we've come to are still premature. So in the previous section, we suggested that we needed 
to ditch an assumption about the relationship between the modes of perceptual experience that senses are capacities for having. So those modes we suggest we should think of as overlapping. The thinking of senses as capacities for having unimodal perceptual experience just doesn't work. But dropping that assumption brought with it other difficulties. So in this next section, I'll suggest that if we drop yet another assumption, that it's a straightforward task to identify perceptual experiences, one by one, thought about the senses as capacities looks less problematic, after all. I want to suggest that there is no single privileged way to identify the individual perceptual experiences of which the stream of perceptual consciousness is composed at a time, and this impacts, I hope, on the issue in hand. So the suggestion is, I think, not unappealing, even at first glance, although I admit I'm going to parody it to make it look better. So consider my hearing someone drilling over to the right and my hearing someone hammering over to the left. Do I have one experience of someone hammering to the left and of someone drilling to the right, or two experiences, one each of hammering and one of drilling? One feels aggrieved, I think, at being made to answer. Both. Tim Bain, for one, is not convinced that we're wrong to feel thus aggrieved. He's not here, so he can't tell me that I'm misquoting him. Counting experiences, he says, is arguably more like counting the number of objects in a room or the number of events that occurred during a meeting than it is like counting the number of beans in a dish. One has some idea of how to go about one's business, but the idea that there's only one way in which to proceed is somewhat farcical. Consider, furthermore, counting experiences along the length of the stream of consciousness rather than as, so far, across its width. The length of the experience that one picks out will partly determine what the experience you have can be said to be of. And this is particularly clear in the case of certain illusions. For Ian Phillips, amongst others, has discussed the case of the cutaneous rabbit illusion in this respect. So in this illusion, a series of taps, say five, are given at the wrist, followed by a series of taps a bit further up the arm, and then some more a bit further up still. The illusion here is that when one experiences all 15 taps in succession, the taps seem to be distributed just about evenly up the forearm, like a rabbit running up your arm, I suppose. Of course, if one were to stop the tapping after the five at the wrist, and ask the subject, what have you experienced? They would say, correctly, five taps at the wrist. Philip's concern is with the structure of temporal experience. And this example for him illustrates the fact that one cannot legitimately ask about what's true at an instant of a subject's experience without taking into account the nature of their experience at subsequent times. This is because, he thinks, what's metaphysically fundamental are stretches or lengths of experience up the stream of consciousness, rather than instance. Significantly, which stretch or length one picks out will make a difference to what one truly says about how things seem to the subject at an instant. So the instant at which the fifth tap ends is part of the stretch occupied just by the first five taps but it's also part of the stretch occupied by all 15 taps. And which stretch one is concerned with, which stretch one chooses to pick out, will determine what it's right to say about how things seem to the subject at the time of the fifth tap. 
and significantly for us, no one lengthwise stretch of the experience is necessarily privileged when it comes to identifying the experience one is having at a time. Note that on this view of the sexual experiences up the stream of consciousness, there's a sense in which the stream at a time cannot be thought of as a conjunction of these different, even overlapping perceptual experiences. Considered in the context of one interval, you can identify one experience had by the subject, so the experience of five taps at the wrist. Considered in the context of a different interval, you can identify a different experience, the experience of taps travelling continuously up the arm. So in a sense, there are two experiences that the subject has. Nevertheless, it's not the case that there is any portion of this subject stream of perceptual consciousness that can be thought of in a single context as the conjunction of these two experiences. So let's return now to thinking about the stream of perceptual consciousness along its breadth, which is what matters to me in the context of this paper, rather than the length of the stream. And let's look back to our case of cross-modal within RP perceptual experience. So as before, we'll think about the example of experiencing a causal relation between something seen and something heard, a flash and a bang. So we can, I think, as legitimately pick out different experiences one has in this case, as in the temporal case just discussed. So it seems to you that there is a flash. This is a visual experience by Grice's two criteria. It seems to you that there is a bang. This is an auditory experience, again, by Grice's first two criteria. It seems to you that there is a bang caused by a flash. This is an audio-visual experience, as before. So thinking one sense at a time, we can identify two unimodal experiences had by the subject. But concerning ourselves with a broader portion of the stream than that, we can identify an experience that is both auditory and visual. So in a sense, and contra O'Callaghan, there are three experiences that the subject has. Even though there's a sense, as he says, in which it's wrong to think that the breadth of the stream at this particular time can be thought of as a conjunction of the experiences. So O'Callaghan denies that the cross-modal experience is a conjunction of these two unimodal experiences, and from that you get to the claim that you're just not having those unimodal experiences. I want to suggest that we don't need to deny that you're having the unimodal experiences too. So once we drop the assumption that there is one way to count the perceptual experiences, of a subject across the breadth of the stream of consciousness at a time, we find that we in fact have many experiences that are just the exercise of one capacity, distinguished by Grice's criteria one and two. There are, this assumption dropped, more unimodal RP experiences than we might otherwise have thought there were, although probably just as many as we usually pre-philosophically think we have. Thus, it's no longer illegitimate to talk about experiences in a modality. There are such experiences to talk about. Furthermore, the worries about the otiosity of the notion of multiple sensory capacities, voiced in the previous section, also melt away. Those difficulties arose from the thought that so few and perhaps no experiences are the exercise of just one capacity. That the, that the very idea of such capacities at least as we usually understood them, began to look suspect. 
Once we can see the modes of perceptual experience that senses are capacities for as having some overlap, but a core of unimodality to, as it were, hold it all together, we need not worry in this way. So we still ought not to say that the senses are capacities for having kinds of unimodal RP experiences, not because there are so few such experiences to occupy the relevant category, but on pain of not being able to make out the cross-modality of the cross-modal experiences. So I think that point still holds. So if you say that something is only an exercise of one of our senses if it's unimodal, then the cross-modal perceptual experiences don't get to count as the exercise of our senses, which seems like an odd thing to say. So, in sort of conclusion, if we're pluralist about our concepts of the senses, then thinking about the impact of non-sense-specific perception on thought about the senses is an inevitably messy affair, perhaps a frustratingly messy one at times. But recognising this messiness is necessary if we're to see that whilst non-sense-specific perception constrains thought about the senses, it doesn't rule it out. So multisensory integration is probably the most talked about form of non-sense-specific perception. And it's a fascinating phenomenon. Many of its effects are surprising and of interest, not only in philosophy and psychology, but in such real-world areas of concern as food production and interior design. If very prevalent, it raises the question, which I've not tried to answer, of what the point is of explaining perception in terms of multiple senses, thought of as systems. And its occurrence to any degree precludes thinking of the senses as systems, as Fedorian modules. And multisensory integration also impacts upon thought about the senses as capacities, if we think of those capacities <coughs> as capacities for having modes of experience that are distinguished in terms of how they're produced. If one thinks of the senses as capacities distinguished in some other way, then multisensory integration, interesting though it no doubt is, does not impact upon thought about the senses at all. The fact, how, however, that we experience cross-modal relations does. This makes too problematic to sustain the idea that the modes of perceptual experience that senses are capacities for having do not overlap. However, once we recognise that there are multiple ways of counting one's perceptual experiences at a time, the idea of multiple perceptual capacities is not made thus problematic. So, non-sense-specific perception, I conclude, leaves us with an intact and not obviously pointless notion of multiple senses as capacities. Thank you. Thank you.